You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now let's turn in our Bibles again to the first letter of the Apostle Peter, and we're going to read this evening 1 Peter chapter 1 and from verse 13 through to the end of verse 16, and we're still on page 1217 of the Pew Bibles, and if you're a visitor unused to using the Pew Bible, you'll notice there isn't a page 1217 in terms of numbers, uh, but it is the page next to 1216. I'm not quite sure why there is this uh, tradition in publishing, but there is this strange tradition. And it will be, uh, it's always helpful to have your Bible open, but maybe particularly helpful this evening as we read these few verses. The first says, Peter, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As the passions of your former, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Almost in his first words in this great letter, Peter had given us a description, almost his definition of what it means to be a Christian. It means in the ESV that I'm using to be an elect exile of the dispersion, or as we would put it in more colloquial terms, it means to be an alien, to be somebody who lives here in this instance within the Roman Empire, but doesn't actually belong here. And therefore, in every little aspect of life, the Christian is bound to be noticed and noticeable as somebody who is different. And we've been thinking about the fact that there is a special relevance in Peter's teaching here, written originally for a pre-Christian world, but so applicable to a post-Christian world. The National Health Service has never employed anyone to be a witness to Jesus Christ. You don't get paid to witness to Jesus. But most of us who are of any age have noticed something of a transition taking place in our society towards what we might call a kind of totalitarianism against the Christian gospel. And to bump into a university contemporary uh, during the course of the week who has been in Malaysia and, of course, has had uh, as part of their visa that proselytizing is verboten. In a totalitarian state, it is not just 
bad etiquette to witness to Jesus Christ. It is against the law. And in many aspects of our societal life, that kind of totalitarianism is beginning to sink in very deeply. The health minister recently made a pronouncement, I don't know whether it's a cabinet utterance or a personal utterance, that in her view, people should not have the option to opt into organ donation. People need your organs, therefore the great plan would be to opt out of organ donation. There is still a measure of freedom, but unless you remember to opt out, the state will own your body. And so many of these characteristics of our contemporary Western society, in which because we have lost the implanting of the divine law in the hearts of our people, we end up either having to make more laws in order to constrain people, or inevitably, and this has always been true historically, a government moves in the direction of a form of totalitarianism. And that was the case in the the Roman Empire. Yes, there was freedom. You could say Jesus is Lord, but you could not say Jesus alone is Lord. You could say kurios Christos, as long as you also said kurios Kaiser. And so Christians, once sheltered under the umbrella of being thought of as a sect of Judaism, now beginning to emerge and experiencing, as Peter says, various kinds of trials, and a good part of his letter is taken up with the fact that these are trials we experience specifically because we are Christian believers. We are different. If I can put it this way, reflecting on how Peter was recognized on the evening of Jesus' crucifixion, our accent betrayeth us. And we've been trying to emphasize as we've looked at this marvelous doxology with which Peter begins that that is also a marvelous opportunity for us as Christian witnesses, not to stick our heads in the sand, ostrich-like, or to become complainers, but to, in some sense, rejoice in the fact that it's now obvious if you're a real Christian, that you stand out. I happened to be thinking as uh, Maria was reading the Scriptures this morning, and you speak to Thanos or Maria or any of the girls, one of the things that will doubtless strike you is, your English is a lot better than my Greek. And yet it would still be true to say, wouldn't it? It would be true of our American members, that whenever they open their mouths and say a few sentences, there will always be something that makes us think, you don't quite belong here. You have this marvelous English, but you didn't get that suntan in Dundee. Or as uh, American friends used to pull my leg by saying, 
you put the emphasis on a deferent syllable. <laughs> and in many ways, that, that, that is so good a metaphor for what it means to be a Christian in the contemporary world. If you're in step with Jesus Christ, there are going to be points in the march where you're somewhat out of step. Somebody was telling me just the other day uh, of a photograph that was taken at one of the, one of the, the quotes, great German rallies that Hitler was addressing, and all the arms were in the air. But in the, in the middle of this photograph, there was one man whose arm had not been raised. The photograph existed because of the one individual. The whole picture was transformed by the fact that here were all these people, and the one man who was different was the one man who was really noticeable. And it's to this that Peter now comes. How is it that the gospel enables us to speak with a different accent? How is it that the gospel gives us strength to keep our hands down when everyone else's hands are in the air? And so he's turning now from his exposition of all the blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ to what it means to work this out in day-to-day -day life. And because I've not given you a summary of First Peter yet, let me give you a very quick summary of what Peter's going on to say. Three things. First of all, from verse 13 through to chapter 3, verse 7, he says, now in this world we have a calling to be holy. And you would have noticed that's where he ends this little section. And then from chapter 3, verse 8, to chapter 4, verse 19, we're not only called to be holy, but we are called to suffer as those who are godly. Christians have a special kind of suffering because they are Christians, and Christians respond to all suffering in a way that marks them out as Christians. And then thirdly, towards the end of the letter, he calls us to live together in humility. So, he's calling us to be holy, he's calling us to suffer as those who are godly, and he's calling us to live together in a fellowship of humility. And the big word that introduces all of this, of course, actually in the Greek text, it's a tiny little word, is the word therefore. And we're so familiar with this principle that we find in the Scriptures that the style of the Christian's life is an, an inference, it's a conclusion, it's an implication, it's a, it's a logical and wonderfully practical outworking of the privileges of the gospel. We noted the other week that we've got to verse 12, and he, he hasn't told us anything to do. Everything he's said is about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. 
Some of us as Christians can be very impatient with that. We want to be told the things that we need to do, and as a result, we often turn the gospel on its head. And when the commands of the gospel begin to thrust their way into our lives, we say, this is far too much, this is far too demanding, because we haven't appreciated this basic principle that the reason the apostle has been digging down deeply with these foundations is because once these foundations are in place, then it's possible to bring to bear on the life of the Christian the most rigorous commands. And the Christian will respond as, for example, in the first psalm with a longing to walk in the way of the Lord. Now here, despite appearances in these four verses, and the appearances in the New International Version are somewhat misleading, despite appearances, there are actually only two commands in these verses. I know in our English versions you'll find a whole series of commands, but there are actually only two commands, and all the other things that look like commands in the translation are are simply surrounding those commands. The first command you'll notice is this. You are to, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the second command is in uh, verse 16. You shall be holy because I am holy. But of course, Peter wouldn't be Peter. St. Peter's wouldn't be St. Peter's if there were not more to it than this. And what I want to do tonight is to, is to use this little passage, yes, to, to, to bring out what Peter is saying, but to try and do so in a way that helps us to understand how it is that the gospel works in the life of the Christian believer. Because everything Peter says in these verses, uh, in a sense, is simply the tip of the iceberg of how it is that the gospel works out. Uh, this little word, therefore, that he uses implies, I'm about to tell you how the logic of the gospel works. Or as perhaps to continue the being a foreigner and having an accent metaphor would help us, Peter is explaining to us how the grammar of the gospel works in our lives that makes us live differently, sound differently, be different. It's because we belong to another world, and we speak a different accent. And even when we translate our gospel language into speaking in the world, we speak the world's language in a way that makes them stop and think, he isn't speaking our language the way we speak our language. Where does she come from? because this is how we live. We, we live as citizens in this realm, 
but our real citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And so every time we open our mouths, every gesticulation we may make, our, the atmosphere of our lives, the aroma that uh, surrounds us are all going to be expressions of how it is that the gospel works out in our lives. And from one point of view, unfortunately, there are six of these. So, so bear with me. Uh, one of our children, as I sometimes said, one of our children, I won't tell you who she is, <laughs> once said to me after an evening service, Dad, this child said, I can, I can teach you to preach. I think this child was about 12 at the time. I can teach you to preach so that people will always take notes of your sermons. I've got mixed feelings about people taking notes of my sermons, incidentally. But I said, well, to this child, how do you do that? Oh, this child said, it's, it's quite easy. This child said, every time you say, there are three things you need to know, four things you need to do, or six things you need to learn. I notice in the pews around me that the women are all in their handbags looking for a piece of paper. The men are juggling about here. If you can just give me six things, I'm fine. Well, I'm going to give you six things, and you won't be fine at the end, but I hope you'll be getting there. The first is this, that in order for us to speak the language of the gospel, we need to understand that every single gospel imperative command is rooted in a gospel indicative. That is to say, whenever the Scripture exhorts us to do something, it exhorts us to do that on the basis of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And this is actually the basic structure of these opening verses, isn't it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he unpacks the suitcase with all the blessings of the gospel. They flow over us. They come under us. They surround us. They embrace us. They enter our thinking. They exalt our imagination. And then he comes in and says, since God has done this for you in Jesus Christ, here now are the implications. And the implications are very rigorous. He understands, if we can put it this way, the relationship between God's love and God's law and God's grace in Christ and God's commandments about the Christian life. And you see, Peter's thinking is far clearer than the thinking of many Christians today who seem to reason, well, God has loved me just as I am. Isn't that what we sing? Or some of us used to sing, just as I am without one plea. And He's loved me just the way I am. And so, I'm fine. That's not how the gospel works, is it? How the gospel works is, I've loved you despite the fact you're not fine and I've poured out my grace on you, but I'm never going to leave you as not fine. And so you get these rigorous commands. 
that to people who don't understand how deep and lavish the grace of the God in the gospel is, these deep commands, as we'll see in a minute, are offensive to them. How dare God tell me there are things I need to do? But you see, they've already turned the gospel on its head, haven't they? They haven't realized that what Christ died for was our sins. He didn't die for our righteousness, except where our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. He died for our sins. And for a believer, therefore, to think that the Heavenly Father is quite tolerant of those evils that require the Son of God to die would be to have a God of your own imagination. And you see, this is the great balance. If we, if we don't have the deep, deep foundations in the love of God in Jesus Christ, we don't have the energy to keep these rigorous commands. But when we see how greatly He has loved us, how marvelously He has blessed us, we want to say, bring them on, Lord. Isn't that what happens when people are converted in Scripture? Lord, what would you have me to do? Just tell me. And so, this is the first principle. Because of these blessings that God has brought to us in the gospel that Peter summarizes in the one big word, salvation, in verses 3 to 12, he says, therefore, there are implications in your life. Every imperative, every command is grounded in the riches of His indicative, His marvelous grace. The second principle that emerges here is this. Gospel imperatives are based on gospel indicatives. Second principle, lifestyle is always the fruit of mindset in the Christian life. And you'll notice how he brings this out. He says, therefore, of course, he's going on to say, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought, up, brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But he's qualifying this. He's saying, now, if the gospel is going to be activated in your life, your, your mind is going to need to be prepared for action, and it's going to need to be sober. In some of the translations, uh, those words are, are translated as though they were imperatives, commands, but they're, they're actually descriptive adverbs, as though he were saying, with a mind that is prepared and sober. Set that mind fully on the grace that is to be yours in Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's important for us always to remember when the New Testament refers to the mind, it's not referring to the brain. Presumably, the brain and the mind are connected somewhere, aren't they? But when the Scriptures speak about the mind, they are not interested in the level of your IQ. Do they still have IQ tests at school? 
The the Bible does not teach the higher your IQ, the better your Christian life. How do I know that? I watch the lives of people who have supersonic IQs, and they can't even begin to understand the gospel. So, what Peter is speaking about here is, is, not, is not so much my brain power as my mindset. Uh, whenever I've been involved in interviews in, in churches for people who've been coming on to the church staff, I've, I've always had a question. When we were in Columbia, eventually people were forewarned, when you get to Ferguson, he'll ask you this question. This was Ferguson's question. What do you think about when you've got nothing else to think about? That probably tells me where your heart is, where your mind drifts when you've nothing external that occupies it. It's a revelation of your heart. And what Peter is saying to us here is, that the mindset is a crucial factor in living out the Christian life. How we think about the gospel and how we set our mind by the gospel, the way in which we set the pattern of our life by, as it were, the magnetic north of the gospel is going to determine the way we live. And this is why he's saying… Actually, he uses the the familiar picture. Literally, he's saying, you know, get your, you know, we would say roll your sleeves up. You know, I mean, in that culture, it's a case of, you know, pull your, pull your whatever it is up. You know, gird up the, you know, the, the, the father of the prodigal son is to gird up the lions in order to run down to, to greet his son. It's a, it's a picture of a focused mindset not a drifting mindset. And this, you see, is why he also describes it as being sober, or maybe another translation, self-controlled. Because this is a mind that has gone through detox, hasn't it? This is not a mind that drifts to worldly things and to, to, uh, to our passions, as he goes on to say. But, but this, this is a mind that's, that's been sobered up by the gospel, has begun, to, has begun to get its values straight. Um, he's saying, now, that's a big key. What you set your mind on is, is so important. Indeed, it's so important you remember that Paul says uh, uh, in in the turning point in Romans, which is not in Romans 1, but the beginning of Romans 12, that the key to living for the glory of God lies in the mind. And so he says, the key to the transformation of the life is the renewal of the mind. And you can see see how that works. Here's a the students are by and large away, uh, so let's just imagine that that uh, that two of these students have fallen in love in the last semester. That's that's not a stretch, is it? You could imagine that happening. Maybe one of them is you. I hope if that's the case, your love has been requited. 
What happens to the young man? What do his pals see? They see that this new mindset that is beginning to, when he has got nothing to think about, and actually when he's got plenty, he should be thinking about the mind, you see, is going towards her. And even in the modern day, it means he'll wash more frequently. He may even wear a tie. Now, I know that's a real stretch. But his life will change. Why? It wasn't just that he said, you know, if I'm going to get a girl, I'd better smarten up. It's because she, she captured his mind. He couldn't get her out of his mind. Now, I don't know if it's like that for women. I, I just daren't ask. But that's how it is for men, isn't it? And you see, it's the same with the Lord Jesus. When our instinct is that, that the, the blessed Lord Jesus is the, is the magnetic north of our mind, then we begin to discover that creates its own empowerment in our lives to walk in a way that will be pleasing to Him. Not because we're screwing up our fingers, I've got to try and please her, I've got to try and please her. You know, and if she wags her finger, I say, if you don't please me, you are yesterday's boyfriend. No, it's the empowerment that comes through the setting of the mind. And this is what he's saying. So prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. And the problem is that our minds are intoxicated with the world, aren't they? But we don't see it because it's gone in so deep. It's gone in so deep. So here is, doesn't this, you know, anyone who has been a preacher without all this stuff, and even sometimes with this stuff, has had somebody come up to them and say, you'll need to speak louder. You're not speaking loudly enough. And you realize, I'm speaking plenty loud. The problem is, you're going deaf. But you see, when you're going deaf, the problem is always other people, isn't it? Why are they mumbling? Or when the food, you know, when you get to this age and the food doesn't taste the way it used to taste. I mean, is the food in old people's homes really as bad as that? No. You're thinking, he's going to say it's worse. Well, no. It's at the taste buds, you see. The taste buds have begun to go. But we don't see it because it's so ingrained in us. And, and this is why this is so important to us, because our minds are really intoxicated by the, the world. And this is the, this is the function of the word in our lives, isn't it? And the exposition of the word in our lives. That it, it does its own work in us. It works into us. Like Paul said to the Thessalonians, that the Word of God was at work in them, and, and it, begins to, it begins to transform the way we think and, and what we set our mind on. And then there's a third principle. And in some ways, this principle looks, well, looks pretty straightforward. 
but it's actually rather striking. He says this, third principle, gospel imperatives based on gospel indicatives, lifestyle is the fruit of mindset. Our present life is rooted in future grace. Our present life is rooted in future grace. So, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, under ordinary circumstances, wouldn't, wouldn't Peter have put it the other way around? Don't we live our present lives on the basis of what God has done for us in His grace in the past? Well, that's also true, but it's not the truth of this text. The truth of this text is actually in some ways more surprising. The truth of this text is how I live my life as a believer today is determined by what I think will happen in the future. So, he's saying, set your hope, set your confidence on the grace that is to be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, he's working both ways, isn't he? He's saying, now, live out your Christian life on the basis of what Christ has done, but keep living your Christian life on the basis of the glory that will be revealed when Jesus Christ comes in majesty and power. Those of you who have ever studied uh, logic or, or philosophy may remember the principle that Aristotle enunciated, that the final goal ought always to be the first thing that is in mind. It's a, it's a form of common sense, isn't it? That the goal determines everything that you do with that goal in view. So, for success, in a sense, success in, in anything, but certainly for gospel success in living the Christian life, we live the Christian life forwards from the future. When we think about the glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ, what does that do? Here we are in a world that is indifferent to Jesus Christ, where it's an embarrassment to them if we mention His name, where the idea that He should be master of their lives is abhorrent to them. What a dark world this is. What on earth did Jesus ever do to make people so angry about Him? That's the world we live in. But then you see we are thinking forwards by having thought backwards. The day is coming when He will be revealed. We will be with Him forever. It is all guaranteed to us because He's already risen from the dead. He's guaranteed the future by what He has done in the past. And as we look to the future, we look to… And I think it's so interesting that Peter describes this as the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you're one of those Christians that whenever you think about the revelation of Jesus Christ coming in flaming majesty, 
you know you have failed him so badly that you're not sure you can really look forward to that day. Yes, you look back to the cross as a day of grace, but you look forward to his coming as a day of judgment. Well, listen to this. Peter understands, as does the rest of the New Testament, that for the believer, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ will be a day when his grace will stand out to us in a way we have not yet been able to grasp it. And we will say to him, I'm sure we will say to him, Lord Jesus, if I'd known you were this gracious, oh, I would have been able to serve you better. And that's what Peter is saying. Understand how gracious he is and how gracious he will be. And that sheds a completely different light on the present. Remember how Paul puts it. He says, yes, we are suffering, but when we see that suffering in the light of the future glory and grace of Jesus Christ, we're able to say this suffering is light and momentary because we look at things not from the perspective that the visible is the real and the invisible is ephemeral and the visible is heavy and the invisible is light, we understand that it's the invisible that's really heavy. You've read C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, The Bus Journey from Hell, Day Ticket from Hell to Heaven, and these ephemeral creatures come out of the bus and they cut their feet on the grass of heaven because it's so solid. That's what he's saying here. And then there's a fourth principle. And the fourth principle is this, that it's our grasp of our new identity that determines the way we live our Christian lives. And you notice how he puts it? He doesn't say now, you know, it's not like, now, now, boys and girls, be obedient children and do better. No, he says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He says, that's what you are if you're Christ's. You've trusted and obeyed, and you're his child you know, there's a very simple principle that probably those of us who are older Christians have heard time and time and time again, but it's so important to be refreshed on this, that it's our identity in Christ that transforms the way we live our Christian lives. And it's our identity in Christ that gives us huge security. Is it not true I mean, it wouldn't have been appropriate to ask this question in plus 18. But is it not true that so many young people in the modern Western world and probably in the East as well, for different reasons, are experiencing a massive crisis of identity? You think about some of the gender and sexual issues and what 13-year-olds and 15-year-olds are saying about themselves. When you're 13 or 14, you've no idea who you are. 
You've no idea whatsoever who you are, but you're under a pressure that says this is your identity, you see. And that's why it makes such a difference. This is, do you know, if you were a teenager in this church and you had not yet come to a living faith in Christ and asked me the question, so what's the cash value of it? Because it's not going to be easy. The cash value is simply this. You'll know who you are. And that will change everything. That will change what it means to be the only person in your class who witnesses to Jesus Christ. That will change what it may mean in your college studies to be demeaned for being a Christian believer because you know who you are. I've never forgotten one Sunday coming home from church when I was a student. I was, I must have been 17. It was my first term. The residence I lived in had a great glass window that went down the side of the library. And I climbed the stairs to my my study bedroom, and I, and I looked at all the people in the library who, dis, you know, quietly or overtly despised my Christian faith. And I, I went upstairs chortling to myself, thinking, there you are, you slave. There you are, you despisers of faith in Jesus Christ. And what have I been doing this day? I've been having the time of my life at worship with the people of God. And, and you can't see it. You just can't see it. And you don't realize that to be conscious of this identity, that I belong to Christ, that I'm a child of the Heavenly Father, you can't actually see far enough into what it means to be a Christian to realize that that is a life-transforming stabilizer, because I know who I am. I wouldn't be surprised. It's still true. It was true years ago that the, that the most common title for poems written by teenagers was the title, Who Am I? Well, you probably don't really discover that till you're in your 30s nowadays, do you? but to know that you're Christ. That's an enormous step. And that you're a child of the, of the heavenly Father. And then he has a fifth principle. And the fifth principle is this. Let me put it in its most technical terminology, and then I'll break it down. All mortification in the Christian life, that is, all we do to seek to overcome sin, must always be accompanied by vivification, that is, by the replacement of the sinful lifestyle with the lifestyle of the fruit of the Spirit. And you notice how he does this. He says, as obedient children, knowing who you are, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, the old family. But instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy in your conduct. So that there's, there's this, as Paul puts it in Colossians 3, there, there is a rigorous putting off of the old lifestyle 
but if that's all I do, it leads to disaster, turns me into a Pharisee. Where there is putting off of the old lifestyle without the putting on of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, all that you end up with is a life where you've been putting off and you become off-putting. That's what happened to the Pharisees, wasn't it? Everything they say and do is about putting off, and none of it is about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and His graces. That's why our great forefather, Chalmers, Thomas Chalmers, preached the famous, maybe the most famous sermon preached in Scotland in the 19th century uh, from 1 John, but entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. So, you're struggling with some dominant sinful pattern in your life, and yes, I know the instinct is, I've got to get rid of this. I've got, to, I've got to squeeze this out. I've got to starve this to death. Won't work on its own. It will only work when… In fact, remember what Jesus said? He says, you clean the house of the one devil, and there'll be another seven devils will return. And you, you see that not infrequently in people's spiritual pilgrimage. They seem to have stamped it out, but then suddenly there's this explosion of demons, as it were. No, you need to be seeking the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings them to the sixth principle. You memorize them all, there will be… David Robertson is going to do a test at the end, and if you don't pass, you need to put more money into the free church youth camps all gospel imperatives are based on gospel indicatives. We need to, we need to speak the language the, the right way around. Remember, years, years and years ago, preaching in Korea or lecturing in Korea, suddenly this superb translator stopped and said, we say that again. And afterwards, I said, what went wrong there? Oh, he said, uh, I think he said, my Korean is a bit shaky. He said, for me to begin the sentence, I need to know what the verb is. And that sentence had the verb at the end, and it was such a long one. I needed to hear it again to know where to begin. And you see, it's like this, isn't it? And he's saying, Gospel imperatives are based on gospel indicatives. Lifestyle is the fruit of mindset. Present life is rooted in future grace. New identity determines the way we live. Mortification always balanced with vivification. And the sixth principle is this. It is who God is that determines what I am to be. You say, wow, that's a bit much. That's the way it was in the beginning. The gospel gets you out of this mess back to the beginning. What was it like in the beginning? Let's make us, let's make them as our image and in our likeness. I mean, this is the staggering thing. This is so staggering. This is too good not to be true, but it's too good for people to believe, isn't it? 
we were actually made to reflect the character of God. And so, when Scripture says us here, be holy because He is holy, it's really just saying to us the gospel gives you power to transform you in what God originally created you to be. Be holy because I am holy. Happened to read a commentary this afternoon. That sounds bad. I read commentaries other times of the week. Happened to pick this particular one up and read it for a minute. I didn't think it would be very good. It was actually very bad, but this is what I found in it. It's any consolation. This is written by an American lady. This is almost unbelievable. This, this woman is a very considerable scholar. Many Christians find the injunction to be holy as God is holy objectionable. You think, objectionable? I mean, I can understand people saying, please, that's far too much. But I object to that. How dare God say that kind of thing to me? After all, we are fragile human beings in need of God's forgiveness, not saints. She she not read the New Testament. Matthew's version, which uses the word perfection, this is the end of chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's even more offensive to those who have grown up with a sense of being unable to fulfill the expectations of a demanding parent. When asked why they felt so angry that such statements were in the Bible. So she's field-tested this. It's gone along to some house group, some home Bible study. What do you feel about this? I feel angry about God saying this kind of thing to me. Who does he think he is? A group of adult parishioners quickly identified the tensions they could not resolve in their lives. Mothers who have to work struggling to meet all the claims on their time. Fathers whose careers have been sidetracked in the economic downturn. Parents whose adult children are in various sorts of difficulty and the like. Life is just too tough to have God requiring perfection. What on earth does she think the people who were first reading and hearing First Peter What world were they in? The Roman Empire. Persecution was about to engulf them. Kent, God shouldn't be saying these things to me. And you don't, you know, with all due respect to this American lady New Testament scholar, if she didn't sit down with these dear people and say, my dear friends, I have bad news and good news for you. The bad news is this. You have no idea what the Christian gospel is. The good news is I'm about to explain it to you from 1 Peter. Be holy as He is holy is a word of unimaginable grace that He would command me to be like Himself, which in New Testament terms is tell me to be like Jesus, that Jesus would say, in the sheer arrogance of saying you're upset, you find what Jesus said objectionable. That's a revelation of your heart. Probably be worse in the men's Bible study, wouldn't it? Who does he think he is? Has he no idea how hard I work? You remember how C.S. Lewis puts it? And if you don't remember, I'll remind you. 
He says, when Jesus said, be perfect, he meant that we must go in for the full treatment. It is hard, but the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. In fact, it is impossible. And then he gives you a C.S. Lewis funny. He says, it may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird, but it would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary, decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. And so you see, we're back where we began. When we realize the all-sufficiency of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, we, we do want to say, Lord, bring on your exhortations. And when we get to this climactic exhortation and we shake a little, be holy as God is holy, we know He's not saying, pull up your, pull up your bootstraps and get on with it. He's saying, this is my purpose all along for you. This is, if you break down the whole of the Christian life to its absolute essentials, it is this. The Heavenly Father made you to be like Himself. You became very unlike Him. He sent the Son who was completely like Him. And now He sends the Son's Spirit who enabled Him to be completely like His Father during the whole course of His ministry. And that Spirit indwells you. And so the command, be holy as the Father is holy, is met by the Spirit who indwells us. And as it were, whispers, I'm doing in you exactly what He says. Now yield. Who wouldn't be a Christian who knows this is true? Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word and for Your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Thank You for, thank you for the hope that hearing these words, yes, under the direction of Your Holy Spirit, but hearing these words from a man who really messed up his Christian life. And to think that these first readers knew he was a mess-up-your-Christian-life kind of apostle. And yet, you had done it in him. And so, they were able to take it from him. And we want to take it too. And so, we pray, make us more and more. Yes, in our different personalities and with all our individual struggles, make us more like Jesus, that while we live in this world, we may carry around with us the aroma of Christ that makes people ask, where did that perfume come from? Where did you buy that? How can I get it? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, 
please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.